The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Robert Siegel has been living in Israel for nearly 40 years, originally from Terenure in Dublin. He brought Ireland to Tel Aviv, opening up the first Irish pub in the country. But with the escalation of violence in recent weeks, the bar, which is called Molly Blooms, was forced to close. At last night marked the first time the doors were opened since the 7th of October. And Robert Siegel joins me on the line now. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Pat. How are you? How are things at the moment in Tel Aviv? Are you still subject to uh, air attack, uh, air raid sirens going off? Yes, yesterday, we, yesterday afternoon, we had a very big one, unfortunately, but fortunately, nobody was hurt. Now, the, the situation, uh, I want to go back in time with you, first of all, to, to understand how you ended up in Israel, because uh, you're from Terra Nure, and uh, you were raised in a Jewish family uh, in an area that was rich with Jewish families in those times. Well, back then, there was quite a few Jewish families. There's very few left now, I think, in Dublin. But back then, there was quite a big Jewish community in Dublin, yes. Now, where did your family originate from? Because uh, you, you uh, obviously came to Ireland uh, as a result of pogroms in other places. Well, not, not myself. I was born in Dublin. I was born in the Rotunda. But uh, my mother was originally from Czechoslovakia, and she, her family got out just before the Nazis came and took over there in the Sudetenland. And my late father was born in Manchester, um, moved to Belfast, and then his family moved down to Dublin. Yeah. His father was originally from Belarus, I think. From from Belarus. Um, so a family that uh, were on the move, part of, I suppose, the great Jewish diaspora. Um, did you always want, as you, I know that I've read that your father wanted to retire to Israel. Did you always want to go to Israel? I think, yes, since I was a kid, I was brought up, uh, obviously, being Jewish, you know, on, on the, the wonders of the state of Israel, how it was formed after the Holocaust and uh, became a refuge for Jewish people. So somewhere inside, I think I always wanted to come. And uh, at some stage, I just decided, that's it, I'm going to go. And uh, I packed up everything left everyone behind and uh, came over. Hmm. Uh, I know that there were many Irish people were proud when a man who lived in Ireland, Chaim Herzog, became president of Israel, and your dad knew him. He did. He, do, he knew him very well. They grew up together. Um, I think he was a frequent guest in my grandparents' house for dinner. He liked my grandmother's cooking. So, yes, it was, and I actually met him uh, after being here a couple of years. With my, my sister was here as well. And we both met him after he became elected the president of Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, you've been there a long time um, and you had to go through everything that any young man would have to go through. You had to uh, do your time in national service. I did. I did my bit here. I was in uh, the army here in uh, the early 80s. Uh, unfortunately, I was involved in the Lebanese War in 1982 which uh, was not a great time, but uh, an experience in life, I suppose. Um, so, I know, in, other, in other words, if you want to learn how to live in this country and be part of the country, it's, it's very important to do your, your military service. Mm. So how many crises have you lived through in terms of conflict within Israel and at its borders? Well, there seems to be something every few years here. You know, there's, it's... You get very few years uh, together without something going on, some operation, some war, some... There's always some uh, security situation going on. 
And uh, it makes life very, very difficult, obviously. Mm. I'm sure uh, people who lived in the border areas in Ireland uh, during the time of the Troubles, when there were uh, random killings and bombs and so on, know what it's like to to live, if you like, in a permanent state of, of anxiety. Is that how it is? Well, I suppose it is. I mean, you, you tend to get into a, into a period when there hasn't been anything for a while and you get, I suppose, a full sense of security and you think, okay, things are going okay. You start building up a business and uh, you see hope for the future and then everything was back to zero again, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Now, you decided uh, you were in the hospitality business, but you decided to bring the Irish bar concept to Tel Aviv. Uh, I'm told that, you know, Jewish people, by and large, are not big drinkers like um, the Irish might be. So was it a bit of a risk? Of course it was a risk, yes, especially in Israel, where there's, almost everybody is Jewish and they're not big drinkers. There are certain people now, to be a small fraction, who obviously like the pint of the black stuff and uh, they would be decent drinkers. But most, most Israelis would have like one beer and on a night out, on a, like a big night out, they'd have a one and a half or two, you know. So it's uh, obviously from that point, uh, you're not going to get rich selling beer. But we do food as well. So that makes up for it a little bit. Yeah. Now, how has business been since the 7th? You, you, you had to close, but you have staff. I'm sure many of them were young and be they women or men, if they're Israeli, they would have uh, done their national service and would have likely to have been reservists and, and therefore called up. Yeah, well, all my Israeli staff have been called up. And uh, I had a few foreign workers as well. And uh, most of them have gone back to where they came from. So, uh, as uh, as we mentioned before, I op- we opened last night for the first time. We have one waiter and one barman, myself and my partner, and that's uh, that's how we have to get through things, you know. Mm-hmm. And and many patrons last night. Not many, not many. I think people, a lot of people, were a bit shaken by the the big missile attack yesterday afternoon. So many people didn't go out, but uh, there are people who just decided, okay, enough's enough. I got to get out of the house. Got to get go down for a pint and clear the head. So that's what we're here for. And if there were um, to be a siren going off, uh, say in mid-evening when you're serving food and drink, where would the patrons go? Well, luckily here in Tel Aviv, we get a warning of about a minute and a half when a when a rocket is launched from Gaza. So uh, there's enough time to shut the door, go across the road. There's a hotel across the road and they have a big public shelter there. So there's plenty of time to get across the road. All right, well, 90 seconds. It's not a lot of time, but enough to cross the road and get into the, the shelter. How do you feel now, after 40 years in Israel, Robert, how do you feel about your future there? Listen, it's very depressing on one hand. On the other hand, you do sort of get used to it. I mean, it's something you never really get used to. And it is very uh, off-putting when you're trying to build a business. But, uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always optimistic, and I hope that one day all the problems over here will be solved. I'm, I'm under no illusions that it's going to take a week or a month or a year or 10 years even. But I think that once people start making a move and start looking to make peace over here, I think it can be done. Uh, not an easy process. But uh, And I think then it would probably take about three generations for any sort of normality to kick in. Are you you acquainted with uh, Palestinians? Are you uh, acquainted with Arab Israelis? 
Well, not so many Palestinians. I mean, uh, I have uh, over the years met many Palestinians, but today I would, uh, I mean, I count amongst my customers a lot of Israeli Arabs, uh, especially Christian ones, um, people who do drink, uh, Israeli Arabs, people who, who do work for us as well. So, and they're very nice people and they're people just like anybody else over here. Yeah. Um, a political solution is probably the only thing that is possible, but very hard to carve out a political solution against the background of what's happening at the moment. Extremely hard at the moment. It looks completely futile, but I'm just, as I said, I'm always optimistic and I hope that once this thing is over and that it doesn't drag on too long, that, you know, people will sit down and talk. And I'm, as, as I said, that that's the only way we're going to solve the problems over here, you know. There's the, the, the Israelis, the Palestinians, the, and everybody else who lives around this area. They have to get together, sit down and talk. And, you know, people say, well, you're mad. That's never going to happen. But I still keep the fingers crossed. Yeah, well, uh, it happened in Northern Ireland. Uh, a peace, sometimes an uneasy peace, but a peace nonetheless. Uh, Robert, look, I appreciate you taking our call. And I hope that uh, everything calms down and business improves and you stay safe. Uh, Robert Siegel, Irish expat, owner of the Irish bar Molly Blooms in uh, Tel Aviv. Well, that's kind of one man's uh, experience on the ground uh, from one side of uh, the conflict. We're joined now by uh, Scott Lucas uh, to talk about the the, the overarching picture of what's going on. Uh, Scott Lucas, Professor and Political Analyst at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin. Scott, good morning. Morning to you, Pat. Now, even this morning, we're uh, hearing reports that the troops have been briefed for that ground invasion. Um, why is it not happening? Well, I think there's a series of factors, Pat. Um, given that we expected the Israeli ground invasion, and indeed the tanks were on the border about 10 days ago, but they didn't go in. I think uh, part of that is that Israel is watching its northern flank as well as to whether an invasion in Gaza would lead to war with Lebanon's Hezbollah, which is an ally of Hamas and an ally of Iran. I think part of it is division within uh, the Israeli war cabinet, that not all those there think that a ground invasion is the best way forward because there's no guarantee of success in fighting urban warfare against Hamas. But I think in large part, Pat, it's because of the pressure from the international community, these series of visits by international leaders, secretaries of states, presidents, prime ministers, not just making it difficult to launch a ground invasion while they're in the region, but pointedly giving Israel the message, often behind closed doors, which is, look, we agree with you that Hamas has to be isolated, eventually removed from power. But is this really the way to do it? Will you not just simply drive civilians in the arms of Hamas as their protector if you launch a ground invasion and if you continue indiscriminate bombing? Now, the, I suppose, optics of all those uh, international statesmen visiting Israel is, you know, like Macron the other day, is to express solidarity with um, Netanyahu and his cabinet. But you're saying that other things are going on. What they say in public, that public gesture of solidarity is masking the message from them, which is to stay your hand, have a ceasefire, allow the aid to get through to the beleaguered people. And we're actually seeing that in public now, Pat. It started off as private messages or, for example, Joe Biden, who uh, just a week ago said that you have to distinguish between Palestinian civilians and Hamas and not react with rage. His code for saying 
don't attack indiscriminately. But now what we're seeing in public is, is a series of countries calling for a humanitarian pause. That's not quite a ceasefire. A ceasefire is more lasting. It's more durable. Uh, but a humanitarian pause does two things. One is, at least for a period of time, it holds off the Israeli ground invasion because you cannot carry out humanitarian operations in the middle of open warfare. And secondly, of course, it opens up the door for getting in humanitarian aid, what would have to be significant humanitarian aid to start that process of getting some distance between Gaza civilians and the leadership of Hamas. Uh, the stockpiles of aid, that's what the Israelis keep saying, that Hamas have stockpiles. They're not going to run short anytime soon. Um, I put it to the Israeli ambassador to Ireland yesterday that they don't have stockpiles of food and water for two and a half million people. They may have stockpiles of stuff for themselves, uh, their operatives and even for the hostages, because when they let them go, they want testaments from the hostages that they are, uh, they've been treated okay and they're safe and sound. You're exactly right, Pat. In other words, um, and I'll be careful what I want to say here, I don't want to pick a fight with anyone, but it is simply untrue that there are significant stockpiles of water, food, medicines, other essentials for 2.3 million civilians in one of the most densely populated places in Earth. Don't take my word for it. The UN has said that they're in the middle of a humanitarian crisis. There is no electricity which means even if you could get water into Gaza, how are you going to pump it to the places? A series of hospitals have been damaged and put out of service. Uh, There are shortages of food. The UN says 600,000 people, 600,000 people are internally displaced and are in shelters meant for only 150,000 and are saying they are so short of supplies, they may have to close operations entirely. Now, It may be true that Hamas, of course, will make sure it has stockpiles of food and water and basics for their fighters, but I'll cut to the chase. If Hamas is holding Gaza civilians hostage by carrying out these mass murders in Israel in October 7th and inviting the Israeli retaliation, Israel's retaliation is also holding those Gazan civilians hostages, and no one should pretend. No one should pretend that those people are in a situation fit for living, even if they can survive death. Uh, Who are the key actors in sorting out this? I mean, we've seen uh, Qatar has been active in uh, helping the release of a couple of hostages. Uh, Joe Biden had conversations with Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, uh, the uh, de facto leader. Um, Who are the key actors that might bring about some sort of ceasefire, some sort of progress? I mean, let's work with levels because this is truly something where everyone in the international community is involved. If you start with the immediate needs, yes, the fact that Hamas has about 220 hostages, uh, about 50 of them are foreign nationals. Qatar is very much involved in negotiations, which so far has seen only four released. And in fact, I, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I doubt we'll see a mass release of hostages. Egypt is vital if we're talking about getting humanitarian aid in the amounts that is needed into Gaza because they control the Rafah crossing. So it's not just Israel that's been holding up the aid, it's been Egypt that's been putting conditions on it. If you go more widely, you have to talk about the regional countries that cannot just simply keep their heads down or use the Palestinians as pawns. You are talking about countries like Saudi Arabia, which could have a significant amount of influence in terms of condemning both the Israeli leadership and Hamas 
and calling for de-escalation. Turkey is taking a loud uh, role in its rhetoric. It could do so also in assisting efforts. We'll see if that happens. And of course, you are talking about not just the European Union, you're talking about individual European countries, including Ireland, as well as the US, as well as Canada, as well as Asian countries. Australia's made a very important statement this morning, because unless you get the large majority of the international community that goes beyond playing one side or the other, which unfortunately is what the UK has done this morning, and I can explain if you wish, unless you get a large majority of the international community that says there is responsibility both by Hamas and by the Israeli leadership, and that the priority, the priority is humanitarian assistance now, not just dozens of trucks, but thousands of trucks, mm. we are going to be stuck, you and I, discussing this for weeks to come. Um, finally, Scott, the, the, you know, you're talking about uh, different countries doing what they should do in terms of de-escalating all of this. But yesterday, talking to the Israeli ambassador, I did the, the numbers, you know, and what the equivalent would be if October 7th that happened in Ireland, it would have meant 800 people died in proportion to our population. It would have meant in the United States 50,000 people died in one day. Um, and the Israeli ambassador to the UN complaining that it was a very one-sided approach by the UN, not accepting, if you like, the extent of the atrocity committed by Hamas. Um, what do you say to that complaint by Israel? Is it appropriate and right? Right. First of all, Pat, um, any discussion of what has happened um since October 7th, has to begin with the fact that Hamas crossed a line, not just with rocket attacks into Israel, but with the deliberate mass murders of more than 100 Israeli nationals, uh, Israeli civilians and foreign nationals. Uh, you cannot ignore that. On the other hand, you cannot dismiss uh, the fact that we are now close to 6,000 people being killed in Gaza since October the 7th. About 5,000 of them are civilians, up to 30 members of one family dying in a single Israeli strike, and that we are getting deaths at more than 100 a day in Gaza itself, and those are continuing. We cannot remove the context behind this, that this is occurring where Hamas has refused to accept the state of Israel, but Israel has blockaded the civilians of the Gazan Strip, as well as Hamas, since 2007. What the Israelis did yesterday was, I think, PR to ignore the fact that the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said all of what I have just said. He said both sides, both sides need to be accountable in this conflict. Both sides need to step up and pull back from action, which kills civilians. The Israelis, rather than taking that message to heart, accused him of only favoring one side, which is untrue. They not only called for him to resign, they are now blockading any visit by UN personnel to Israel, including the head of humanitarian operations, Martin Griffiths, at a time when humanitarian operations are essential. So I have great sympathy. I have friends who lost family in those attacks on October the 7th. My heart grieves, but my heart grieves also for those in Gaza and no politician be it of Hamas or is Israel, should use those civilians as pawns to justify further mass murder. Scott Lucas uh, of the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin, thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.